And it's time for the kids to come on up front and have a seat. All right, come on up, find a spot. All right, find a spot to sit. Good to see everyone this morning. All right. Now, last week, if you remember, we had two lines of people, right? We had a godly line of people, people who lived by faith, and an ungodly line of people, people who were not faithful but continued in their sin, right? And so then what happened is over the course of time, as we read the book of Genesis in the Bible, we read the accounts of what happened with people, and over time, the number of people on earth increased greatly. There were lots and lots of people, okay? And as the number of people greatly increased, there was something else that increased a lot as well, and that was sin. Sin increased a whole bunch as well as more and more people were on the earth. Now, remember when Adam sinned in the garden by disobeying God? Do you remember that? And Adam's sin brought sin to all people, right? And now people, all people have what we call a sin nature, or sin is naturally a part of who we are now. So today in Genesis, we're going to be hearing about the heart of man, Okay, we're going to hear about man's heart, all right? Now, that's kind of how we picture our hearts, right? And you all have a heart, don't you? You have a heart inside your chest that it's an organ that beats and it pumps blood throughout your whole body, right? That's where your heart is. That's a physical heart. But when the Bible talks about the heart, it talks about us as people, who we are deep within, what motivates us, what drives us, what our character is all about. And so guess what we'll read about the heart of man, about man's heart in the Bible today. You want to know what we're going to find out? Man's heart is wicked and evil. That's what we're going to read in the Bible today. Man's heart, the heart of man is wicked and evil And so when God looked deep within people, into their heart, this is what he saw deep within them. That's not good, is it? That's pretty terrible, actually, isn't it? It's very terrible. We're also going to read today about, we're going to hear about God's heart. God's heart. And when God saw all the wickedness and evil in man, his heart was filled with grief and sorrow. So God, in seeing all people's sin, he was really saddened by all of people's sin. Did you know that God is saddened by your sin too? Our sin makes God sad as well. And so God saw grief. He was grieved and sorrowed over people's sin. In fact, the people's sin was so great that God wished he hadn't even created man. Isn't that wild? God wished he hadn't even created man because man's sinfulness was so bad. Now, because of the continual sin and evil in man's heart, God decided to bring judgment. Do you remember what uh, comes as a result of sin? Do you remember what happens? The wages of sin is death, right? Death is the, the consequence or what comes as a result of sin. And so God, in his judgment for all this 
sin, the wicked and evilness of man's heart, God was going to destroy the whole earth and all who were in it. That's pretty severe, isn't it? That shows us how bad our sin really is. And so God, God is just. That means he has to bring about a right punishment for sin. So God will do that. We also know that God is merciful. And so God will show favor to one man named Noah. And God is going to save this one man and his family. And we're going to learn more about that in the weeks to come. So this morning we're going to hear about the heart of man being wicked and evil and deserving God's just punishment. So thanks for coming up, everybody. You can go back and have a seat and listen as Pastor Jeremy preaches. All right, so as Pastor Jeff said, we are in a section of Genesis chapter 6 where we are seeing why the flood is coming. I've been reading a book recently called The Man Who Moved a Mountain. It's the story of Bob Childress who was born under the shadow of Buffalo Mountain in the Blue Ridge Mountains, an area known for uh, drunkenness and violence and murder. He got drunk for the first time at age three as the brandy was passed around the Christmas table amongst all the family. He saw his first murder shortly after his two friends were playing cards and got in an argument. One pulled up and shot and killed the other and many other things like that. That's the area he grew up in. Uh, and what he saw there is what we see in Genesis 6, that the intent of man's heart is wickedness. And yet he was converted, uh, finished school, finished high school, finished college, finished seminary in a short few years, went back and pastored in that area he grew up in and saw the gospel radically change it, provide freedom from it. And we're going to see the same thing here. That's what God's about. So if you have your Bibles open, we're in Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 to 8, and we are going to see uh, seven verses explaining in horrifying detail how wicked we are, and then in one simple sweet verse, the news of God's grace and transforming us from that. So Genesis 6, 1 to 8, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born of them, <coughs> the sons of man saw that the daughters of man were attractive were beautiful, and they took as their wives any that they choose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on earth in those days and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of it repented that the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. And the Lord regretted or repented that he had made man on earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Let's pray. Righteous Father, it is only by your um, grace that we can keep our way pure, and so do not allow us to stray from your commands. Your word is a treasure. Please teach it to us. 
May you, by your Holy Spirit whom you have sent us, strengthen us to meditate on all of your precepts, such that they become our delight. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, our text is something of a sad prelude to the end of chapter 6 and chapter 7 and chapter 8, which is the worldwide flood of God's judgment against man. So we'll cover those in the coming weeks. In uh, verse 5 of chapter 6, we see the summary of what man became like in sin. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So those words then explain what we're like, apart from God's grace. This is hard to conceive of ourselves. You actually have to have faith to believe these words, that this is what we would be like if God were to remove himself, his restraining hand, from us. They also uh, helpfully explain to us the doctrine of sin. So if you go to any Christian organization, denomination, or church, you'll typically find uh, a heading of what we believe. This is their statement of faith. Our church has one. And included in that statement of faith is typically a statement of who man is. And that statement of man will include two parts. One, that we're creating God's image, Genesis 1 and 2. And two, that we're fallen. It'll have a statement of sin. Our statement reads, because of Adam's disobedience, sin entered in the world and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Therefore, mankind is naturally sinful, hopelessly lost, and completely unable to remedy his lost condition. There's two major things we see in that statement that we see in this text. What I want to do is start out a sermon just by describing from our text what we mean by sin. What is sin? God is here in chapter 6 telling us that mankind is so corrupted that just a few generations after Adam uh, that all we do is sin. Again in verse 5, every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Every only continually. Words that couldn't be any fuller. Every intent. Only evil. Continually evil. This is the doctrine of sin in Scripture. One commentator writes, a more emphatic statement of the wickedness of the human heart is hardly conceivable. This is, this is you apart from God's grace. This is what you're like as a husband apart from God's grace, as a wife, as a sibling, as a son, daughter, as an employee, Every intent, only evil, continually evil. <clears throat> That's me. That's you. But do you really believe that? Think back to last week when maybe you had an argument with your spouse. Who was the wrong one in that argument? wasn't you. Or if you are a child of a parent and something happened and your parent came to you, it wasn't you. Couldn't be you. It was circumstances or it was another sibling. 
but we are every intent, only evil, continually evil. All right? Now, one of the reasons you need to understand this and to believe it is so that God gets the glory in your salvation. That is, the reason the Bible goes into such detail of how corrupted we are in sin, how vile and putrid we become at our heart level, is so that you might despair of being able to fix it. So that you might lose all hope in yourself of a remedy for it. So you might turn to God, humbly pleading for His mercy to rescue you. This is the second part of our statement of faith about sin. Man is completely unable to remedy his lost condition. You see in this text that they don't even care that they're like this. They would say something that's just what we're like. It's just human nature. And they're right. Man, left to himself because of the fall in Genesis 3, is no longer free. We're enslaved to sin. We're bound. We're captive. We love sin. We love gratifying our sinful natures. We don't even want to be free, much less if we did, could free. We can't check this in ourselves. We can't rescue ourselves. God must do it or it isn't done. This is why the doctrine of regeneration in the Bible is so important, so central. The doctrine of regeneration begins with We are dead in our sins and trespasses. Dead. Jesus once uh, was told that a dear friend of his named Lazarus had died. Lazarus was dead and in the grave a few days. And uh, that is used in order for us to understand what we're like in our sin. We're dead and rotting. And God comes, Jesus comes, and simply says, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus doesn't ask Jesus to save him. Jesus doesn't come and knock on Lazarus' grave and ask Lazarus politely if he would like to be raised from the dead. Jesus comes and speaks authoritative, life-giving words that raises a dead man. That's what God does for us because we're dead in sin. Now, let me clarify a few things. First, what we see in chapter 6 of every intent, only evil, continually evil, is who we are, not by creation, but by nature. I just want to make sure that we understand that God didn't create us initially this way. This is what we are because of the fall. So it is who we are naturally now. We get it from our parents. We got it from their parents. We can trace it all the way back to Adam. 
And so in Adam, this is us. So when we speak of the sinfulness of man, we are speaking of that which is contrary to creation. Contrary to that which way, was the way that God made it. And so by God's grace, we can be born again. We can be forgiven. We can be counted righteous in Christ. All right? Then we see that the place where this sin comes from in our lives is the heart. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The heart, as Pastor Jeff said, is you. It's who you are in some. It's the core of you, the center of you. Jesus taught us that it's out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. So when your kids are fighting and one kid says to another, I hate you. And then the parent grabs the kid and says, what would you say? I didn't mean it. I didn't mean it. I didn't mean it. When they say I didn't mean it, you know what that is, right? That's a lie. Because out of the heart, the mouth speaks. The tiff between siblings, the toy that he wanted that she had or the sucker that she had that he stole, that little situation shook loose the depravity in your three-year-old's heart. And what came out was what was in. And so when anger comes out, it's what was already in there. When hatred comes out, it's what was already in there. When coarse talk or joking comes out, it's what was in there. And so the problem is our heart. The problem is the core of our being. This is why salvation isn't just mere like change in behavior, it's rebirth. Another way to say it is it's swimming season. We were working the fireworks stand and a mom with her two daughter, three daughters came in all in their swimsuits. They've been to Hodeg Park, they were swimming. Sometimes we conceive of salvation as a little girl out there struggling and the lifeguard swims out and brings the little girl to shore. That's what we think salvation is. That isn't salvation. Jesus doesn't come and just save us from almost drowning, but we're still the same. As strange as it might sound, Jesus swims out to us, drowns and takes us down with him, then rises from the dead and brings us back to life too. Completely new. He dies and we die with him. He rises and we rise with him. That's biblical salvation. Biblical salvation isn't just something you try out. Biblical salvation isn't trying to get rid of your evil habits and do a little better. Biblical salvation is death and resurrection. Rebirth to new life. It is an entirely new renewal, reformation of what you once were. Behold, if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. Why is that so central in the Bible? Because this is who we are. Because our hearts, 
Our every intent, only evil, continually evil. He doesn't just bring you up on the shore coughing and sputtering and, and you're grateful for a little while and then you go back to just like you were. He kills you and then he raises you. And so he gets all the glory. Because you, you were just a lifeless lump of flesh at the bottom of Boom Lake. And he rose you from the dead. He rose you from this. He changed you and made you new, washed you, cleansed you, gave you his righteousness. And so this doctrine of sin is very practical. So when you're at work and you're hobnobbing with your compatriots and you're complaining about the boss, the doctrine of sin should tell you that you're the first problem. Quit your whining. It's not his problem. It's not her problem. It's you. That's where you start. When you're playing youth sports and you're jealous or envious because so-and-so gets to play and the coach is a jerk or the coach is blah or the coach is... No, no. You're the problem. You, it begins with you or at church. Well, the elders, Pastor Jeremy or so-and-so. No, no, no. Jesus says, first, take out the plank in your own eye so that you can then see clearly, take out the little teeny tiny speck in somebody else's eye. So this is how we apply the doctrine of sin. The doctrine of sin is very practical in our worship. Why do we come here every Sunday and sing? Because God in Christ has made us new. Because we were dead in our sins and trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. That's why we do this every Sunday. And the doctrine of sin is very practical towards the future. We look forward to the day when sin is no more. We don't have to wrestle with temptation and enticement and lust and all of this that overwhelms our souls. It will be no more. This is what Christ has done. All right, so this leads us right into the specific sin that is named in Genesis 6, which is a bit confusing. There's some debate. We see that man began to multiply, and then we have this phrase in verse 2, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man the debate is around who are these sons of God. There's basically two camps on it. Some think the sons of God are angels, angelic beings who take on flesh and come down and see the beautiful sons of man, women, and intermarry and, and, and um, have children. Others see that the sons of God are the line of Seth. If you remember back to last week, you had these two lines, the line of Cain and the line of Seth, the line of Seth were those who were chosen by God, adopted by God. They are, in effect, the line of God, the sons of God, and, and they weren't to intermarry with the ungodly. And so that camp thinks then that the sons of God, the line of Seth, or the godly line, have now become ungodly and become worldly. They have intermarried with unbelievers and uh, the ungodly and so become corrupted. It seems to me that because of that context, the better reading 
of this passage would be the sons of God in reference to the line of Seth. Um, This is the line, as I said, chosen by grace that God would bring from it his Savior. This would make sense then that we end here with Noah in verse 8, who was a descendant, as we saw at the end of chapter 5 of Seth. And so the sin that we see here is that the sons of God, these godly, believing line of Seth, these who have faith in God's promise to bring out a Savior, a, a seed of Eve who would conquer the serpent, that these sons of God who were supposed to marry only godly saw that the daughters of men were attractive. So they did what we do. We put lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh before commands of God. They're worldlings. They began to follow their heart more than what God had said. They love beauty more than they love God. And so that little line at the end of verse 2 is the summary. They took as their wives any that they chose. So they're just rebellious. They're just doing whatever they want. They're like in the book of Judges. Every man does what was right in his own eyes. These godly descendants of Seth, This lineage of faith has now, even them, are corrupted. I think that makes the most sense of this. They're doing what they want without any regard to God. The adopted sons of God are now acting like worldly people. They're supposed to be distinct in the world, different, holy, set apart, and they're not. They're not. They're not. So, this should help us as Christian parents not to presume the salvation of our Christian children. That's one thing you could take from this. This is what happens. What one generation presumes, the next generation loses. We as Christian parents should be diligent in the raising of our children with faith, with much prayer. We should... We should teach the Word of God to our children. We should discipline their sin faithfully. We should remind them of the gospel. We should worship our God with all of our hearts as parents. But ultimately, all of our hope for the salvation of our children is in our God. They inherit the corruption of Adam from us. They need to be reborn just as we did. But we see also a warning for us. How quickly... As children of God, can we be seduced by this world? You know your heart, right? What are you like internally? What do you think about? What do you want? Is it God? Your heart, desire, communion and fellowship with God more than anything else? Do you fear God more than man? The men in these verses have lost all spiritual sight, all spiritual feeling. The only thing that motivates them now is what they can see with their eyes. Their lusts are what's driving them. They have no regard for God. All they wanted in this life was what this life could offer. They wanted beauty, not God. They wanted gratification of their lusts, not godliness. And so we're 
should be cautioned here. We should take warning here. We shouldn't presume on God. We also see some teaching on marriage, don't we? Proverbs 31.30, charm is the seed field, beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. These godly ones began to marry just for beauty and for sex. Isn't that our age? Isn't that our day? Listen to this quote. This is an old quote, like older than the founding of our country. Here we find a distinctive feature of early modern marriage that distinguishes it from much modern practice. Physical attraction and emotional love were not viewed as essential conditions for marriage. Although few doubted that they played a role, the love that drew husband and wife together was a mutual willingness to make sacrifices for one another. Hence, a duty that developed within marriage. Such love emerged most readily between spouses who at the outset found one another worthy of respect and trust. Not, do I desire or want this person, but do I find this person honorable and companionable? That is the central question for a successful marriage. For how could one make sacrifices or become affectionately attached to a person one did not respect and trust? Unlike the modern romantic approach to marriage, in which one loves another in spite of irreconcilable personable, religious, or social differences, the, marriages count, the marriage counselors of Reformation Europe urge people to seek mates that they believe they can learn to love because they first respected and shared common values. It has been a blight on the people of God from the beginning to marry those who do not believe. To date and become emotionally intertwined with people who are at enmity with the God that they profess to love beyond all others. That's what's going on here in these verses. If you were to ask me, why did God flood the earth? The main thing told here is because of intermarriage with non-Christians. That's what's going on here. Because the godly people become so corrupted. And so, if you're a young person and you profess allegiance to Jesus Christ, you should be looking for and waiting for a mate that you can respect their walk with the Lord, first and foremost. Beauty matters. Romance matters. But sooner or later, he'll have a gut. Right? I'm not going to say what she'll have. I'm learning. My wife's right there. She's beautiful. And so take care, right? Take care. Do you know a Christian who's married a non-Christian, and do you think highly of that Christian's walk with the Lord? Not seen it. Not seen it. The Lord's response to our sin is horrifying. The Lord saw. Where's the last time you saw in Genesis and the Lord saw? Right, Genesis 1. 
And the Lord saw what he's made, and it was good. The Lord saw what he's made, it was good. The Lord saw what he made, it was good. So this is supposed to take you back there and remember God's good creation. And now, what does the Lord see? He sees something that is so terrible before him, so awful in his sight, so disgusting to him, that what we read about him is on the edge of stating heresy. (laughs) We read next that the Lord repents. Now we know in the Bible, God doesn't change his mind. I, the Lord, do not repent, Malachi 3.6. In Numbers 23.19, God does not change his mind. He's not re- he doesn't repent. God is a God who knows all things from all time. He didn't make a mistake here. God didn't wake up on a Tuesday and go, Oh, I repent of this wickedness. I didn't know it was going to happen like this. We do that. We make mistakes all the time. This is stating for us in a ways that we can get our mind around how awful the wickedness of man is before God, that it states something that makes all faithful believers go, Moses is a heretic. Why would Moses say God repents? It's not because God had to change his mind. It's because how awful sin is that Moses wanted to use language that would shock you of how perverse we can become. It grieved him to his heart, to the center of who God is, the sinfulness of man grieved him. Now, let's not sentimentalize this. God is a God without passions. So the doctrine of aseity. God isn't moved internally like you and I are moved. He wasn't shedding a tear over our sin. God is a God of wrath, as you'll see in the coming chapters. He is angry. This is describing for us in human terms how awful our sin is in the boldest way possible. We know here that God had been patient with man. Verse 3, my spirit shall not abide any longer. He, he had abided with us. He had been patient with us. He bore with our sin. But they presumed on God's patience. You and I do that, don't we? We sin again, and we just tell ourselves, it's okay. God is kind. God is forgiving. God is patient. Which is true. But that's not the only truth in the Bible. The truth is God hates sin. It's abhorrent to him. It is an affront to him. God responds in the Bible with patience to sin, but also with severity. Paul in Romans chapter 11 says, Note then the kindness and severity of God. We as believers do need to preach the kindness of God and the patience of God towards us in our sin, but we also need to preach to ourselves the hatred of God at our sin, and learn to hate it. And so God declares here that he will make an end of us for our sin. Verse 7, I will blot out man. 
I will blot out man. And we play with sin. We play with it. We excuse it lightly in ourselves. We don't take drastic, serious measures to put it to death. We act like it's nothing, it's trivial, it's light, it's nothing. We forget that our sin could only be dealt with by the Son of God taking on human flesh being tortured and beaten and crucified on a cross and died and buried. We don't see in the cross of the crucified Son of God God's abhorrence of us in our sin. We sing love and grace, and which is true. But in the cross, God's hatred of sin and God's mercy towards us meet. see it here. We see it here. We see God's hatred of sin. I will blot out man. And we see God's mercy. But Noah found favor. <laughs> Seven verses of dark, awful descriptions of our sin and one very simple, short, sweet note of God's grace. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is how God communicates throughout Scripture to us. Salvation. He makes known our sin, the depravity of it, the awfulness of it. And then he tells us that there is salvation. There is salvation. When it says Noah found favor, it does, if you would continue on in verse 9, include that Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. But Noah didn't do that in of himself. Noah, like us, was born again. Noah, like us, had faith in God's promise. Noah, like us, decided that following God was right instead of following the world. He did it all by God's grace. He did it all by God's grace. And isn't it true, brothers and sisters, that the grace in verse 8 seems, seems sweet only because of the terror of the first seven verses? Grace is actually grace if you'll believe verse 5. If you will actually believe verse 5, every intent only evil, continually evil, then verse 8 is astounding. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't compute. Every intent, only evil, continually evil, but Noah found favor? What? This should be the gospel. Who is man, O oh God, that you would be so patient and merciful with us? Only evil, continually evil, every content, but we find grace? 
That's actually grace then. This is the thing that the American church is losing. We don't understand grace because we will not admit evil anymore. You see, what we want is flattery, not God's favor. That's, that's what's going on here. This, these verses make no sense in our world because we define love in our world as flattery, as lying to each other about the goodness of each other. And so we have no idea what grace is anymore. You've seen all of the gay pride stuff going on. Our world does not want us to actually love those who are in same-sex attraction, gay, transgender. They want us to flatter. And flattery is hatred. Because the Bible says that those in that kind of sexual immorality will not inherit the kingdom of God. Right? So if you just flatter and you just lie, they go to hell and you did nothing but hate them. And you, and me. And so God will not flatter. He'll just save. God will tell us exactly what we're like, as bad as we are, and then save us. And that's grace. Did you deserve it? Did you earn it? Did you even ask for it? And God came in great mercy. And you found favor because God gave it to you in Christ. That's grace. And isn't it the sweetest thing in the world? Doesn't it make you want to sing? Doesn't it make you forget all about you and just look at God? That's what the result of this passage should be. There is nothing worth looking at in me. I'm not cute. I'm not cuddly. I'm not good. I'm not strong. I'm not wise. God saved me. Praise God. So let's do that. Let's just give God the glory for our salvation. Let's worship and praise Him. Let's enjoy Him forever for this salvation that He saved us, even though the intention of my heart, the thoughts of my heart was only evil continually. But Jeremy found favor. The word but there is the key. And how did we do it? God sent His only Son. Whosoever believes in Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage, for your word. It is holy, it is right, it is awesome. Teach us it. Help us to believe the truth of chapter or verse 5 so that we can rejoice in the grace of verse 8. Help us to see the truth that you are a God who hates sin. That only those who are found righteous in Christ, walking righteously, will ascend your holy hill. And it's all of your grace. And so that you get all the glory. And so God, give us faith to believe these verses about ourselves. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things I don't want you to do because of this text and this sermon is to lose hope about the future. This morning in my Bible reading, I was reading of Christ coming. And it says this, of the increase of his government of peace, there will be no end. Okay? Our future is secure because of Christ. Of the increase of his government, 
and of peace, there will be no end. So you can go here, this is the charge, you can go here having hope that the God who began this work will complete it in you and in us and in this world. Christ and the gospel will win because he is king. And of the increase of his government peace, there will be no end. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. May your spirit, soul, and body be preserved completely without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here it is. Faithful is he who calls you. He will surely bring it to pass. He will do it. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week in the Lord. I love you.